All right. So hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Drift Proof Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Andrew Cipriano, and today I have a very special episode for you all. So I have been, if you have tuned into any of the episodes, I hope you guys have, um, but I've been doing primarily episodes where I talk to other people and I talk about their meaning and what they're doing with their life, how it's meaningful, um, any mental health issues or positives they've had in their life. And we make it kind of like a back and forth conversation about psychology, meaning, direction, and you know what you should do with your life to maximize positive emotion and minimize negative emotion. Today, I want to just start a series on educating just general principles about psychology. Eventually, I'm going to get deeper. Um, I'd like to do heavier hitting episodes where we go deep into psychology, but I think it's important to start with the basics. So when you start learning about psychology, I can't think of anything more basic than understanding the different perspectives in psychology. So as of right now, there's seven different perspectives recognized, and I'm just going to define what a perspective is. So a perspective is a particular attitude toward or way of regarding something, a point of view. In psychology, it's a system of beliefs used to understand the mind. So throughout psychology, uh, it's a relatively new science. So it was officially founded in 1879 by Wilhelm Wundt. Wilhelm I don't know how to say it in more of an English sounding name, but uh, 1879 in Leipzig, Germany. Uh, it's kind of interesting. One of my exes lived there, so I have been to Leipzig and it's a little small town. Um, it's really beautiful and it's kind of cool to go to the birthplace of psychology. So I'm going to list off the seven major perspectives, starting with the psychodynamic perspective. So one is psychodynamic, two is the behavioral, three is the humanistic, four is evolutionary, five is sociocultural, six is biological, and seven is cognitive. So you might be thinking, why do I care about different perspectives in psych? What does this mean to me? Why does it matter? Um, and I asked these questions when I started learning about psych. And then as you continue learning, you see the bigger picture um, kind of, you know, you learn and you learn and learn and then you look back and you're like, okay, that makes sense now. So the seven perspectives are different ways that different psychologists and different groups of psychologists have tried to understand the mind. Today, we recognize seven of them because each one of them have important pieces that we can understand the mind with. So if anyone doesn't know, um, we currently study the biopsychosocial model in psychology, and we're getting to the biopsychosocial uh, and spiritual model. So I do know that psychiatrists and both social workers and psychiatrists share the that biopsychosocial model. And it's pretty much just looking at the biology. So the medical part, you know, the physical neuroscience, it's looking at the psychology. So like the psychological stuff going on, the unconscious and um, drives and motives and desires. And then it's looking at the social. So the environmental factors, the familiar factors, anything outside of the mind or the physical body that affects your mental health in your life. So it's really important to understand these seven perspectives, understand how they actually apply to that model. And once you have a good founding understanding on that, you can start to understand psychology and the person as a holistic individual, which is really important. We want to look at the whole individual and we want to look at all the factors that affect them to be good psychologists or good scientists or good doctors. All right, so I'm just going to jump into the first perspective and let's kind of get our feet wet with this one. So this is the psychodynamic perspective. So if anybody wants, I'm just going to kind of throw out some famous psychiatrists, psychologists that are linked to this perspective, uh, even philosophers. With the psychodynamic, the most famous one is obviously going to be Sigmund Freud. Um, and then after him, Carl Jung. So Jung was one of Freud's, uh, I don't want to say disciples, but students. And then Eric Erickson. If anybody doesn't know who Eric Erickson is, he is a guy that coined the term identity crisis. Um, Freud and Jung should have to go without explanation. <laughs> so Freud is the founder of the psychodynamic perspective and psychoanalysis. So psychoanalysis explain the human mind like an iceberg with only one small amount above it being visible. That is our observable behavior, but it's the unconscious submerged mind that has the most underlying influence on our behavior. So Freud used three main 
um, elements to describe the mind. The ego, which is the known self. So the ego is like, my name is Andrew. I am a mental health tech. I speak Spanish and English. I am Italian-American. So that's all the things we know about ourselves that we project, the stories we tell ourselves. Um, and then there's the id, literally spelled as I-D. And that is the animalistic drives. So this is like the sex drive, the power drive, the hunger drive, the meaning drive, if you want to go um, into humanistic psychology a little bit. But Freud primarily focused on sex drives, aggression drives, the more animalistic ones. And then the third part is called the superego. So that's the morality that settles conflict between both the ego and the id. Um, so this is kind of a confusing trio to describe the mind. The most important thing you can take away from the id, the ego, the superego is the unconscious and the conscious. So pretty much Freud used three main methods of accessing the, the unconscious mind, free association, dream analysis, and Freudian slips, also called slips of the tongue. So in free association, this is where you're going to get the really stereotypical psychoanalyst or therapist who is sitting behind someone on like that long couch with a little headrest and the person is just talking, whatever comes to mind they're saying. And the person who is, and the therapist is taking notes on all of that and trying to see patterns and spot whatever the unconscious and the drives that the human is are trying to say. And this was literally, I mean, this is how therapy was done with in the Freudian area and it's kind of cool. So Freud also did this. This is hard because back then there wasn't a lot of science in this involved. It was just Freud and whatever his ideas were and trying to analyze. And um, originally psychoanalysts was supposed to take thousands of hours to actually dig through the mind of the unconscious and heal, quote unquote, heal the individual. So that is what free association is. That's one of Freud's three main methods of assessing the unconscious mind. So free association is just talking, whatever comes to mind. Um, I'm sitting there, the psychologist or therapist is aloof and they're behind me and I can't see them and I'm just speaking my mind. And um, if you ever watch Mad Men, you can get a really good example of uh, free association. They use psychoanalysts in that series. I think it was the first season and the wife goes to therapy and it was very interesting to see. I think they did a good job with that. Uh, the next thing that Freud used to kind of assess the unconscious and heal the individual was dream analysis. So this is very interesting. Um, dream analysis is literally when you analyze dreams, right? So it's super easy in concept, but it isn't so easy when you start doing it. It's part of the psychoanalyst process. So again, dream analysis wasn't supposed to be like, I had a dream where I was flying and I fell and now Freud just knows what you're talking about. Pretty much dreams are idiosyncratic to the person who's had them. So in order to properly analyze a dream, you have to properly understand the individual. You can't just come up to somebody and say, this dream means this for everyone. Although further down the line, uh, Carl Jung was doing dream analysis and he came up with the unconscious archetypes and collective unconscious. So archetypes are pretty much just symbols across cultures that are the same for everyone. You'll hear a lot of psychologists and philosophers talk about this. The sun um, and Horus, the god, is all-seeing. So you see, have the eye of the Egyptian on top of the pyramids, and you have it in the American dollar. It's always watching. That's like the eye is the archetype of watching. You have the dragon is like the archetype of chaos. And then if you look into any Disney movie, you could see archetypes left and right about the prince, the princess, the again, the dragon, the evil mother, the benevolent mother. So that's what Jung believed is that through dream analysis, you could spot these archetypes. But it's also again, idiosyncratic to each person, each culture, each experience you've had. So if anybody, just a quick note for dream analysis, I love it. It's very important to, to actually read your dreams. So one of my favorite therapists, uh, Jordan B. Peterson, I'm sure you've heard of him. If you haven't, look him up. And he talks about dream analysis. It's pretty much just the dream trying to tell your conscious um, whatever message it has to tell you in the best way that it can. Um, dream analysis is never about 100% certainty. And that's the hard part with psychoanalysts in general is that it's not 
hundred percent certainty. A lot of it comes from the therapist's perception and what they believe and their own biases and limitations and blind spots. So just a quick note, if anybody, you ever go to a dream analyzer, analyzer, analyzer and they tell you they know a hundred percent that you falling onto this cloud made of pudding and you got sucked in and drowned means this, then don't listen to them because they don't know. But it's also fun to play around with ideas. And that's kind of what Freud and Jung believed that if they let you talk about the dream and kind of prodded you and, and spoke, then the unconscious would lay you little hints along the way in Easter eggs that you could then interpret to make sense. All right. So Freud and the psychoanalyst's other method of using the unconscious and assessing the unconscious was slips of the tongue. I'm sure you've heard of a Freudian slip. It's just an unintentional error regarded as revealing subconscious feelings. So Freud, as you know, pre-association was going on, they'd say something that was startling and it wouldn't really make sense or it would make sense or it would be too revealing in that moment. And then Freud would say that's part of your unconscious trying to get out. Um, so again, psychodynamic perspective is awesome. It got a lot right. Like Freud coined the unconscious and he hit it right on the head. And today, just an example of how we use the unconscious today and how we've obviously accepted it into the mainstream psychology and therapy is cognitive behavioral therapy has a core belief model. The core belief model just says that it, when we're younger, but not always when we're younger, we form these beliefs about ourselves, And then we unconsciously through the unconscious, um, live out these beliefs and they become kind of manifest destiny in a sense, because we have these beliefs that we're unconscious of. Every time we have money, uh, we find a way to get rid of it. Or every time we have a functioning relationship, because we tell ourselves subconsciously that we're not lovable because of an experience that happened when we were younger, we end up sabotaging it. So that's the psychodynamic perspective. It's very, very cool. There's a lot that that perspective has that is right, that brings to the table that's very important. So the second perspective I want to talk about today is the behavioral perspective. So famous psychologists, psychologists here are B.F. Skinner, John Watson, and Ivan Pavlog. So behaviorism is the rich and diverse interdisciplinary tradition that focuses on observable behavior. Um, so an important note here is that it's not unobservable unconscious process. Behaviors only looked at observable behavior. So they didn't say that this behavior was cause of unconscious drives and desires. Um, they wanted to measure it in more of a scientific method. So that's why this process came out because psychoanalysts didn't really give enough scientific reasoning. It was more, again, the perspective of the psychoanalyst or the therapist in that situation and blind spots and biases are not good when we're trying to do something more scientific, especially assessing people's minds in a scientific way. Um, so the big contributions that you'll learn about in psychology for behavioral perspective is B.F. Skinner came up with two different kinds of conditioning. So with this behavioral conditioning, you're going to come up with the white lab coat psychiatrist who's messing with animals in a laboratory and they're torturing them or whatever, and they're making them go through mazes and stuff. You get that stereotypical view, whereas psychodynamic, you get the therapist with the guy on the couch or the girl on the couch. Now behaviorism, you get the scientists in the lab messing with animals, trying to understand their mind. And you think, you know, with whenever that happens, you think, oh, they're doing it on people too. And the Nazis did that. And it's kind of a negative connotation, but, um, we learned a lot from behaviorism. So to get back to the two different kinds of conditioning, classical conditioning in involves learning through association. So this is when two stimuli are repeatedly paired. So a response that is really commonly known or famously known of classical conditioning is Ivan Pavlo Pavlog's dogs. So pretty much Pavlog decided he was going to mess with dogs and see if they could be trained to do certain things uh, from certain stimuli. So Ivan would ring a bell and then he'd feed them and eventually, or give them a treat. And then eventually he found out that if you rang the bell and you didn't give the treat, they would still salivate. So from one association, the bell ringing, then they would salivate. So that's called classical conditioning kind of pairing two stimuli by association. Uh, the next one is called 
operant conditioning. So operant conditioning involves learning from the consequence of behavior. So this one's super simple. I think this one's easier to understand fundamentally. I don't know why I've just always thought this was easier. Operant conditioning is like punishment or reward system. So that's a consequence. So if you put your hand, the famous example, put your hand on a hot stove, you're going to get burned. That's a punishment. So that's operant conditioning. I won't put my hand on a stove anymore, even if I may or may not be hot um, because I don't want to get burned. And then an example with a reward is I go to school to get good grades and then I get praise from my parents when I get home or they give me a cake at the end of the month or whatever. So operant conditioning is just consequences of behavior, learning from that. So punishment or reward pretty much. And then I need to explain. So this is so, so important to me. So with the behavioral perspective, uh, this is where it gets a little bit 1984 George Orwellian. So B.F. Skinner believed that, Amer- that Americans, that people could be blank slates, pretty much the behaviorists believe that people are blank slates and then they learn just from their experiences, from their positive reinforcements and from their association learnings. So again, they only learn from that operant, that classical conditioning. So uh, a quote from B.F. Skinner was, what is love except another name for the use of positive reinforcement? So think about that for a second. That's pretty dark uh, when you really think about it. Is B.F. Skinner really just believed that we learned from conditioning? So um, I want to read you this paragraph from my book and, you know, Give me a thumbs up or thumbs down what you think, you know, give me some comments about this because I thought it was pretty interesting. So Watson and Skinner, as well as a handful of scientists at their time, believe that science, if used in the right way, could help in creating an ideal person, happy, educated, nonviolent, creative, and moral. Skinner held that most human problems were because people put too much trust into incompetent, sinister, and selfish politicians. As soon as trained psychologists replaced such incompetent rulers and scientists named the right conditions for growth and improvement, a new society and a new personality type will emerge. So this is kind of creepy. You know, it's really, it's really 1984 Orwellian stuff. I really am going to keep saying that because we put the right scientists in and we get their arrogance and they know what's right. And they have their, I just think it's, I don't like it. It gives me kind of the heebie jeebies. It makes me think of the white coat scientists during the Nazi era, trying to create the perfect Aryan human that will be scientifically proven to be Aryan and a better race. So whatever you want to think about that behaviorism did teach us a lot about positive negative reinforcement and how we learn. It's a very important perspective on psychology. So that's why we use it. And I have nothing against it, but that complete focus and fundamental behaviorism, I'm not really a huge fan of. All right. So number three, and this is a lot of people's favorites. This is very popular today. This is humanistic perspective. So they also call this the third force or the third wave because it came after the other two. Um, Famous founders in this perspective are Abraham Maslow and Carl Rogers are two really big ones. Um, There's a lot of other humanists. So this perspective came around in about the 60s, I believe. And it came up because the first two perspectives were too negative on human beings as a whole. Um, The psychoanalytic perspective looked at how people were pretty much just a collection of unconscious desires and drives from the id and they had no control over their life. They're just trying to satisfy these unconscious drives. Whereas the behavioral perspective said that humans are blank slates and they're just a collection of every experience that they've learned from positive and negative reinforcement. So those are pretty negative. So the humanistic perspective believe that people actually do have free will, the freedom to choose their own destiny and strive for self-actualization, which is the achievement of one's full potential. The humanistic perspective centers on the view that each person is unique and individual and has a free will to change at any time in his or her life. It also emphasizes studying the person as a whole known as holism. So this is where we get that psychosocial psycho biopsychosocial approach to healthcare where we're looking at the whole individual. So this is kind of where psychology took a turn for giving human beings you know, more credit than, than had previously been assumed. And then again, just to kind of reiterate, humanistic psychology strives to help people fulfill their potential and maximize their well-being. Once those two checkpoints are hit, it's called self-actualization. When people are living to their most capability they can possibly have, self-actualized people. 
All right. So one of the famous um, things that came out of humanism is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So Maslow believed there's five basic needs everyone has until we can hit self-actualization being the final need. Uh, and then I want to throw this in too. So I'm going to go over the hierarchy. It's it's arranged in a, a pyramid from physiological at the bottom to self-actualization at the top. But if anybody's interested, there's a book called Transcendence by Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. It's half a uh, positive psychology book, well, half a memoir of the life of Abraham Maslow. And in this book, Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman reinvents this pyramid, this hierarchy as a sailboat because it was never really supposed to be by Maslow's standard, you hit this one need and then you move up the the ladder to the next need and you can't be working on a bottom, you know, a lower level need where you're working on a higher level need. It's actually, they're all, you know, you can be working on self-actualization while still be looking at physiological. So it's just kind of important to realize that the pyramid, although it's taught in every basic psychology class, it's not really what Maslow wanted. And I think the sailboat approach where you're kind of rocking back and forth between different needs actually is a little more accurate. So we're just going to go over the pyramid really fast. The first one is physiological. This is just your food, water, shelter. Um, that is your basic needs that you need to survive in air. And then safety is next on the ladder or the rocking boat, as I like to say. Um, so safety is literally just making sure you're not going to get robbed. You have financial security. You know where your next meal is coming from. Although you have food in the physiological, the safety would say that you know where food's going to come from in the future. Um, the next one is love and belonging. So as human beings, uh, connection is not a desire, it's a need. And that's proven biologically through how we used to be hunter and gatherers. And we're actually biologically wired in our brain is to need love and belonging. Um, so once you have love, once you have love and belonging, you have esteem. So esteem is just confidence, competence, self-efficacy, which pretty much means that you trust that you are, you, you know, you are trusting yourself, self-efficacy that you are able and you think you're able and then there's self-actualization. And again, self-actualization is just the realization or fulfillment of one's talents and potentialities, especially considered as a driver need and present in everyone. All right. And then this is kind of important. So I have gone over the main parts of humanistic uh, perspective, but I also want to just throw in some other points. All right. So with humanistic therapy, there are a number of different types of psychotherapy that have emerged um, that are rooted in humanism. These include client-centered therapy, existential therapy, and gestalt therapy. All right. So Carl Rogers is the one that came with client-centered therapy. This is literally just a non-directive approach to talk therapy. It requires the client actively take the reins during each therapy session while the therapist acts mainly as a guide or source of support for the client. Um, person-centered therapy allows a client to steer the ship. So this is really important. This is really a turning point in therapy from when we went from the psychoanalyst, um, where you're just talking and the therapist decides everything for you to then now humanistic client-centered therapy, uh, takes the approach where no, you're going to become actually the leader of your own therapy. And this is so important because good therapy empowers the individual to make decisions for their own. In therapy, we never want to advise. You are not an advice giver. That is not good form. That is bad to do in therapy. You want to just inspire the person. You can always hint and question them. And, you know, through questioning them, you're technically advising them on certain things, but it's never directly advising. You know, you're hinting and helping and um, empowering. So another part of Carl Rogers therapy was unconditional positive regard. This is very, very important in therapy. It pretty much just says to the person, I'm going to accept you and take you however you are. I'm going to be completely transparently honest with you, but I'm never going to you know, hate you or dislike you or express distrust in you. It's just unconditional positive regard. We're going to be unconditionally positive to you regardless of any situation. That's so important to open up the therapeutic boundaries. You know, people go into therapy and they have their walls up and rightfully so. I'm a stranger sitting there and you're just supposed to tell me your whole life story. But when you come at them from the client-centered approach where they're directing their own therapy and then you're also going to be positively, affirm not affirming, but positively regarding them and at all times, you know, it opens up a therapeutic space for them to then heal. 
All right, so I've gone over the first three, and then I want to throw this in. So a subset of humanistic psychology is called positive psychology. It's not technically recognized as one of the seven perspectives yet. It's the scientific study of what makes life worth living, focusing on both individual and societal well-being. It studies positive subjective experience, positive individual traits, and positive institutions. It aims to improve quality of life. It's a field of study that has been growing steadily throughout the years as individuals and researchers look for common ground on better well-being. So um, it was a new domain of psychology in 1998 when Martin Siegelman chose it as a theme of his term as president of the American Psychological Association. It's a reaction against past practices which have tended to focus on mental illness and emphasize maladaptive behavior and negative thinking. So again, it builds on the humanistic movement by Abraham Maslow, Rollo May, and Carl Rogers, which encourages an emphasis on happiness, well-being, and positivity, thus creating the foundation for what is known as positive psychology. So this is a big one today, positive psychology, and unfortunately, it's become a huge part of woke culture. Ugh, I can't stand it. But pretty much positive psychology, again, it focuses on the good. So we look at what's right with the individual. We're not just saying, oh, you're malevolent and your collection of unconscious beliefs. You're free will and you have the right to choose to be good and why are people good and let's study why what altruism is instead of studying what malevolence is so it looks at the good aspects of the human soul and love and you know empathetic love and true love and passionate love so that's where all these positive elements start to come into therapy it's it's never been like that before and again with the woke culture you're going to see quotes everywhere just love yourself and only think of the good and be positive and like the worst thing you can tell a depressed person is Think positive because they can't think positive. It's a mental illness. So it's frustrating. So that's where you get the woke. You know, again, any of these perspectives and keep in mind, positive psychology is not technically recognized as one of the seven. Any of these perspectives is brings good things to the table. But if you look solely at one of those, you're missing out on so much psychology. You might as well have no perspective at all. In my opinion, again, there are people that believed in each one of these perspectives individually, but now that we're taking a more retrospective view on it, it's so good to have a holistic and multiple approach viewpoint to your psychology. So if anyone ever says, you know, that psychology, positive psychology only bullshit, I just don't agree that that is all the whole picture. Again, it's important and I love it, but be skeptical. All right, so the next one that technically is not one of the seven is called existentialism, but this is my favorite, so I'm throwing it in there, damn it. It is Viktor Frankl, Jordan B. Peterson, Irving D. Yalom, and Rollo May. Um, again, my favorite. So existentialism, existentialism or existential psychology actually came from existential philosophy. Um, and the four givens of life, um, I believe they were introduced by Irving D. Yalom, are this, and this is what the whole philosophy of existentialism is human existence is tragic life is painful and absurd life is full of anxiety and depression but steps can be taken to address the tragic and <laughs> tragic nature and absurdity of our lives so let me say this again one human existence is tragic two life is painful and absurd three life is full of anxiety and depression but four steps can be taken to address the tragic nature and absurdity of our lives so this is so important because I think existentialism, if you look at Buddhism where it says life is suffering, this is kind of where that came from. It's more of like a, it looks pessimistic on the surface, but it isn't. Anyone who studied Buddhism is not a pessimistic religion. It's saying that life is suffering, but because it's suffering, that's where your meaning's going to come from. All right, so different existentialists have different kind of philosophies under these same basic principles of how they're going to deal with despair and suffering. So Nietzsche advocated action and celebration in the power of human will and power. Again, that's Nietzsche. Camus, or Camus, I don't know how to say his name properly, encouraged people to revolt against their own existence. Kind of more of a pessimistic view. 
Um, yet others encourage people to look beyond their prescribed social roles, such as family members, students, or nurses, and stop living the lives that fit into the standards defined by professional occupations and roles. That's Kierkegaard and I think Sartre. Sartre? I cannot say his name. It's S-A-R-T-R-E. I want to say his name so badly right, but I keep saying it wrong. Some contemporary philosophers continue to discuss a personal subjective realm of existence in which an individual lives and extracts pleasure from life only for his or her own sake. We may eventually embrace the shortness of our lives and thus free ourselves from anxiety and despair. And this is my absolute favorite philosophy of life. I don't think it's everything, but I think it's my favorite and it's someone I've, I've just really, really liked over um, looking at a bunch of different philosophies and psychological perspectives. So this is Viktor Frankl. He, he chose therapy as a means to address individual anxieties. So I want to throw this really fast. So Viktor Frankl is amazing. If anyone has never heard of him, he wrote Man's Search for Meaning. He also has his own therapy that he invented called Logotherapy, which is therapy through meaning. So Man's Search for Meaning is a great book. Read it. It's like literally $9 on Amazon. You're silly not to read it. Um, it pretty much documents Viktor Frankl's life as a Holocaust survivor and then goes over his his philosophy of life after he came out of that situation and his philosophy of life was existential. So it seems sad. You know, we're talking about tragedy and life is absurd and there's suffering and depression, but at the last, but the last given of existentialism is that steps can be taken to address this tragic nature and absurdity of our lives. So Victor Frankl came up with a very, very simple equation. It's suffering without meaning equals despair or depression. I like to say, but suffering without meaning equals despair. And that pretty much just means that we all suffer. And if we can't make meaning of that suffering, then we're going to fall into depression because we're suffering arbitrarily for no reason. But at the moment that that suffering finds a meaning, this is a quote by Frankl, then it's no longer suffering. It ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning. So if somebody goes through a really bad depression and you cannot figure out why you're going through this depression, but you make it through by the grace of God, thank God you make it through your life. You didn't kill yourself. You didn't die. Yes, that's awesome. Um, and then you go and work in a psych unit and you help people who are struggling through that same depression get through it. Then that suffering that you've gone through has actually become the thing that is the most meaningful thing in your life. So that's kind of what Franco was talking about when he says, that suffering won't be suffering anymore when it finds a meaning. I think that's so important. This is why I love existentialism. It, it looks pessimistic on the surface, but it's such an optimistic view on life and it's such a realistic view on life. Um, so it, I think it's, I personally like it better than positive psychology because it looks at the, it feels more real to me, feels more applicable. So I'm also going to just read off. Rollo May was also a famous existentialist. Uh, he lived from 1909 to 1994. And I'm going to read this paragraph. So Rollo May believed that anxiety was provoked by the fundamental technological and societal changes taking place in the global world. The individual was caught amid an epic conflict between the old world of tradition and the new world of change. Tradition rep represented stability and certainty. Change was rooted in uncertainty and instability. Another source of anxiety was the emergent threats to the individual's most fundamental family values. Um, so these factors led to anxiety, which led to confusion, which increases sense of powerlessness. The individual increasingly often feels insignificant, which can lead to anger and even violence. So it's very important here to, to note, mention that existential psychologists and philosophers both said that as technology advanced and religion became less important, this was going to happen. Um, as Jordan Peterson will tell you, uh, Nietzsche predicted that the communist revolution was going to happen um, because of this pretty much lack of religion or failing of religion. And there was a, a vacuum, an existential vacuum as um Victor Frankl likes to say of moral and purpose and, you know, so existentialism just comes from existence. So it literally tries to find our existence in this potentially arbitrary world of suffering and pain. So that's important just to note about Nietzsche prophesizing 
Yep. So, and then, and anyone who's ever listened, Jordan Peterson also kind of goes over the whole order versus chaos, the tradition versus change. So that's like the two, I, I like to say, I like to compare it to the yin and the yang. It's like an archetype, you know, you have the balance, the masculine, the feminine, the order and the chaos, the good and the evil, and you have to balance them. And that's how the world's going to move forward. But if one of those is too great of power and the other one's not powerful enough, then you're going to fall into a mess, um, disorder pretty much. And just kind of a fun note here. If anybody studies psychology, you'll notice that there's, there's not, we don't really call them psychological illnesses. We say disorders. So like bipolar disorder, personality disorders, uh, mood disorders, major depressive disorder. So it's kind of interesting, you know, the idea does connect there. If you're yin and yang, if your balance is out of scale, you're going to be in disorder. And that's what we say in psych. So kind of a fun little plan words there, but it really, it isn't a plan words. It's deliberate. It's deliberate. All right. So the next perspective, number four, this is the cognitive perspective. I don't know how to say his damn name. Ulrich, U-L-R-I-C, Ulrich Nessier, Jean Piaget, and Albert Bandura. Focuses on mental process of how people think, remember, store, and use information. So this is what the cognitive perspective is. Let's say it again. Cognitive perspective. People, How people think, remember, so memory, store, um, again, memory and use information. And we also look at things like perception and how our eyes work and how the senses work, like physically how they're working and how uh, signals get sent to the brain and back and how that works and reaction time. So that's cognitive perspective. Um, and then I'm going to define cognition as well, because I don't know, I never knew what this word meant. And now I do. And I'm going to define it for you. Damn it. So the mental action or process of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought experience and the senses focuses on conscious thought. So again, focuses on conscious thought, cognition. This is unlike unconscious, um, psychoanalytic, or observable like behaviorism. Um, although cognition, obviously, we it is observable. Uh, you know, we can measure reaction time and how people remember things and store information. Um, it doesn't just measure that that observable information. Also measures you know how we think, and you can't really measure how people think, but we understand the processes. That's not directly observably measurable, but that's where the cognitive perspective differs from the behavior perspective a little bit. All right, so cognitive therapy gained popular in the 1960s. The cognitive perspective with its focus on memory, intelligence, perception, thought process, problem solving, language, and learning has become a major force in psychology. Cognitive neuroscience, which uses brain imaging like MRI, includes the study of physical workings of the brain, nervous system when engaged in memory, thinking, and other other cognitive processes. So a very, very important note to make here with cognition. CBT, this is the most, I would say the most popular therapy right now. It's cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and it is the, it came out of the cognitive perspective, partly in part, but it also uses other perspectives, but cognitive perspective kind of stole the name for it. So in the 1960s, psychiatrist Aaron T. Beck formed the idea uh, for this therapy after noticing that many of his patients had internal dialogues that were almost a form of them talking to themselves. How are thoughts interpret different situations? How are thoughts drive our actions? So cognitive behavioral therapy is the most popular therapy right now because it's the most evidence-based. That means that we have stats to prove that it works. Um, in psychology, again, we are kind of getting away from the psychoanalytic tradition where we're using you know, very little evidence to now where we're getting more scientific about it. So we want to be able to have stats to measure exactly what's going on, exactly the changes, exactly the standard deviations from how this works from person to person. And um, we want to be technical. So that's why we're using CBT. That's why it's so popular. And that's why we know it works. So C, cognition, is just how we think. So that's the C in CBT, cognition, how we think. Um, B, that's behavioral. How do we behave? So if we put it together, C, B, T, how we think is how we behave therapy. So it's that simple, baby. So in CBT, um, 
it's pretty much, again, just kind of reshaping how we think about ourselves. But one of the big things that I like, and I think it's the most important part of CBT personally, is the core belief model. The core belief model pretty much looks, it, it borrows a little bit of information from the psychoanalytic perspective. It says that um, when we're younger, or not always, but mostly when we're younger, we form these beliefs about ourselves and their unconscious beliefs. Um, so let's say our dad lost his job and then we just had to move and we had to live in a trailer and our life was totally crappy financially. Um, we grow up. And we have this unconscious belief that we're not aware of that we are never going to have money again. And we always, you know, we saw our dad say that he's never going to have money. We saw everyone in our family say, you're never going to get money again and all his bosses. And this, you know, it's kind of a hypothetical situation. But through that experience and through those experiences, we believe that we're never going to have money. But we don't actually, we're not aware of it. Um, so now we have a core belief in our head that we're never going to get money. So now we walk around life and every time we get money, we find a way to throw it away stupidly. We make really hasty investments uh, deliberately because they're hasty and we don't want to put a lot of energy into them. Or we give our money to somebody else to invest. Or we go on vacations and spend money as much as we possibly can in the two days we're on vacation. Or we make dumb financial purchases constantly. Um, or we spend all our money just on anything else stupid that we spend our money on. So through that unconscious belief, it becomes true. Again, it's manifest destiny. So that's a core belief. So the core belief model pretty much helps us identify those core beliefs and it, it helps through dialogue. You know, once a trained therapist and cognitive behavioral therapy is sitting with you for a couple hours, hopefully some of these core beliefs are going to show themselves. And then once we're aware of them, again, we bring the unconscious and the conscious. So Carl Jung would say the con the unconscious is only as big as the light we're willing to shed on it. That's very interesting. So um, or he actually said the shadow, he called the unconscious the shadow. He says the shadow is only as big as the light we're willing to shed on it. So if we shed light on the core belief, then we are totally taking power over that core belief to change it and change our cognition, how we think about that. And then through that, we reverse the manifest destiny that is our unconscious. So that's the core belief model, baby. And I fucking love the core belief model. And that's CBT 101. So get with it, get with it. Aaron T. Beck came up with that cognitive um, perspective is kind of taking credit for that, but it really uses a lot of other perspectives as well. So again, mixing the perspectives to make a more holistic person and individual. Let's do it, baby. So this is number five, the social cultural perspective. Famous psychologists here, Lev Vygotsky and Albert Bandura again. So the social cultural perspective combines social psychology, which is the study of groups, social roles, and rules of social actions and relationships, and cultural psychology, the study of cultural norms, values, and expectations. So social social so social psychology and cultural psychology are kind of like they're they're like very close brothers or sisters with um anthropology and sociology, but they're different because, you know, they're a little more psychological. So that's what the social cultural perspective is. It literally looks at how society, our social ties and our family and our culture all affect our mental health and our mind and how we think. So this perspective studies the effect people have on one another. Super simple, right? So social cultural perspective reminds people of how to behave in different social situations. This field also studies cross-cultural research, which compares the similarities and differences of at least two different cultures. So one of the big things that I'm sure you've heard from this perspective that came out of this uh, perspective in psychology is the bystander effect. So I actually watched a video on the bystander effect the other day. If you guys look up YouTube, type in the bystander effect, it was pretty incredible, the strength of this effect. So there was a guy crying, literally crying out in pain on a sidewalk and he was kind of dressed like a homeless guy and he's screaming, help me, help me, help me. And this is in Britain. So oh, boo on you, Britons. And he's just crying on the ground and no one's helping him until eventually one lady breaks the ice and goes over and then other people jump in and help. It's kind of saying that you're not going to break that cultural norm, that unspoken cultural norm until someone else does. Um, it's a very, very powerful effect. It's, it's amazing. Once you start studying social psychology, you can see just how amazingly powerful cultural norms and stuff are, which can also be used for evil, AKA uh, fascism and the Nazis. 
All right. So another part of the social cultural perspective is the social learning theory. So social learning theory suggests that social behavior is learned by observing and imitating the behavior of others. So the famous experiment here was the Bobo doll experiment by Albert Bandura. So pretty much they put a kid in a room. They had a blow up doll that looked like a clown in the corner. And then they had an adult come in and beat the crap out of it. And then um, they put out some snacks for the kid and they said, no, you can't have those snacks. Those are for other kids. I don't know if they told them they deserve them more or whatever. They said they're for other kids and the kid couldn't have it. That's the main idea. And then the kid would go up to the doll and beat it up like the adults have. So they said, wow, through observing and imitating that that's a real phenomenon. So kids and adults, just as well as kids, even though if you're, you're not um, as willing to admit it, learn from observing and imitating. So that is the social learning theory, but it's pretty obvious that there's some truth to that. So social learning theory is a big part of social um, psychology, and that goes right into sociocultural perspective. So another thing that you'll see in the sociocultural perspective, just for examples, is looking at poverty, discrimination, in-group and out-group. Um, studies are huge right now, in-group, out-group. Definitely they do political stuff there. They look at um, kind of the morality and in-group and out-group studies and mixing cultures. All right, so that's number five, baby. Number six is the biological perspective. It's also called the medical or the neuroscience model. Again, biological perspective. So this is where the bio and the biopsychosocial approach comes from. Um, so studies the biological basis of behavior and the process. So this is part of neuroscience, study of the psychological structure, function, and development of the nervous system. Humans and animal behavior is seen as direct results of events in the body. So the biological perspective states that all thoughts, feelings, and behavior ultimately have a biological cause. It's one of the major perspectives in psychology and involves such things as studying the brain, genetics, hormones, the immune system, and nervous systems. All right, so obviously the biology is very important in psychology, and this is why most medical, so really fast, most medicine is based on the, I want to say the biological model, the bio model of health. What is it? Uh... Okay, I've drawn a blank, but I think it's the bio model or the biology model or bio something, whatever. It just studies the biology. So that's like when you're looking at physical medicine, they're going to start with the bio model of healthcare. And that's where psychiatrists and medical doctors that aren't psychiatrists differ. Is it doctors look at the bio model and then psychiatrists use the biopsychosocial model and hopefully the biopsychosocial spiritual model um, into the future. Um, so so a good example of just the bio model of looking at depression would be, this is without the psychosocial model, which are so important in depression. You can't, and I, I will die on this hill that you cannot study depression without looking at the biopsychosocial model, but a bio model, strictly your biomedical model, that's what it's called, the biomedical model. Wow, I remembered. Okay, I needed a second. I just needed that because that was just totally a brain dump. Maybe that's a Freudian slip. I'm just kidding. So... The biomedical model of depression, if you're looking strictly at that, would say that there's a chemical imbalance of the brain. So that's it. There's a chemical imbalance of the brain. We're going to do some kind of psych med to adjust that chemical balance. And it wouldn't really ask why so much there's a chemical imbalance. It would just want to fix it. Um, so my questions to that approach are what about work? Like your work life? Do you like your work? Do you hate your work? Are you making enough money? Um, are you financially good or not good? What about your social life? Do you have friends? What about family? Do you have a love um, any love in your life, any intimacy, any relationships you care about? What about your accomplishments? Are you 40 years old and sitting on the couch in your parents' room, which there's nothing wrong with that, but if you've done absolutely nothing, then I start to get a little skeptical. Um, goals. Do you have any goals that you're working on? Goals are extremely important for your mental health. If you're not moving forward with your goals, you're moving backwards. Um, what about your diet? Are you eating healthy? Um, that's kind of a biological perspective, but also maybe not, you know, and there's a whole field called nutritional psychology that looks at your diet and how it affects your mental health. So I don't think that they take just a strictly biological, biomedical model. Um, so keep an eye on that. 
Sunlight. What about your sunlight? So there's studies on, on depression right now that seasonal affective disorder or seasonal depression has a lot to do with how much sunlight you're getting because sunlight releases serotonin. That's the same thing that happens when you take antidepressants or exercise. That's my another point. So what about your exercise? Are you exercising? So as you can see, I've annoyed you with about a thousand different things. But if we're just looking at the biomedical model of healthcare to say that depression is a chemical imbalance, it doesn't really explain the whole picture. So this perspective is obviously important, the biological perspective, but it doesn't explain the whole picture. So just keep that in mind um, as you move forward. All right, you guys, we made it. Ding, ding, ding. Woo, woo. I'm not going to put sound effects on this podcast because I don't want to do that. I think that's annoying. Maybe one day I'll change my mind, um, but I don't want to do that. So the last and seventh recognized perspective in psychology is the evolutionary perspective built off of Darwinism. If you don't know what Darwinism is, I love you guys, but I don't want you to be listening to this podcast anymore. You need to move forward. This is not the right episode for you. This is not the right episode for you, honey boo boo child. So the evolutionary perspective focuses on the biological basis for universal mental characteristics that all humans share. It seeks to explain why we lie, what makes a partner attractive, why so many people are afraid of snakes, or why people universally like music or dancing. This perspective described the brain as an information processing machine, kind of similar to the cognitive model, um, that's designed by the same process that Darwin described referring to our hunter-gatherer ancestors. Awesome. So let's throw an example of the evolutionary perspective. So snakes, we're scared of snakes, right? Well, an evolutionary perspective would say that when you see a snake, you jump before your eyes even register that it's a snake because your nervous system registered it was a snake and it made you jump before your way too slow eye to brain to leg connection made the connection. So that's kind of an evolutionary example. We're afraid of snakes because it kept us alive. And literally to the point that our nervous system knows a snake is a snake and we need to jump before our eyes even do. So that would be a um, kind of Darwinistic adaptation that we took from the psychological perspective. Um, and then it makes sense why we work backwards in this perspective. We ask ourselves why we do this in relation to how it helps us survive. So it's kind of a cool work backwards perspective. And it, it answers questions in the long-term context. So again, the snake, why would we jump when we see a snake? You know, why do we yawn when other people yawn? Uh, that'd be an interesting thing to see in the evolutionary perspective. I actually don't have an answer for that, but I know yawns are contagious. Um, and then to use a strictly evolutionary perspective is to consider all behaviors such as fears, prejudices, relationships that was a result of evolutionary process. Um, so I think that with any of these perspectives, if we were really trying and we we're really stretching and uh, grabbing it, grabbing at apples, we could say that any one of them explain all everything in the human mind. I think you could do that anytime, but then you're, you know, you're missing out on so much, but, but you could really try. So like a lot of people were purely behaviorists, like Skinner said that he wanted that 1984, like perfect Aryan person to be a behaviorist citizen that would do no evil and only have good virtues. Um, we see how well that worked out in communist Soviet Union and Mao and all that shit. So it's really important to not just take any of these single perspectives, like the positive psychology. Again, we see this in woke culture and I can't stand it. It just makes me angry because it's not the whole picture. It's not even half the picture, but we're just taking positive psychology and saying, oh, well, I'm a, and I actually don't understand because there's a lot of people that say I'm a positive psychologist or I'm a cognitive psychologist. And I think they're using, they are actually in their psychology more than one perspective. So I don't understand how you could say you're strictly a positive psychologist or anything. But again, I just wanted to stress that psychologists develop their own eclectic perspective. And that just means they use bits and pieces of several perspectives to make a way more holistic perspective. So we can use that to make a holistic image of a person. So we know what we're dealing with. Um, it's very rare. And in my opinion, you're cited to take only one perspective in psychology. They all have some things right. And they all have some things that aren't right. It's like taking 
you know, a painting and adding one color and one color and one color. And eventually we're gonna have a really beautiful portrait. Yes. Can you make a portrait with just red? Absolutely. But is it going to make it the most beautiful portrait in the world? Probably not when you have so many other colors you're not using. Um, so that's my thing. I just want to throw that out there and say that we've got to mix these perspectives. And at the beginning of the podcast, you're probably like, what is a perspective? Why does it matter? Well, it's just a way of looking at psychology. It's a different, um, kind of a different school of thought on psychology. So now that we understand there are different perspectives to look at the mind and we should mix all of these together. Now, again, we can build this foundation for how we're going to continue learning about psychology. Um, I really, really enjoyed this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. This was like a lot of fun for me to do. I didn't realize that I could just sit here and talk for 48 minutes, but I, I'm really happy with it. If you guys have any questions, comments, concerns, if you think I'm not right about something, that's totally okay. Please find a way to reach out to me. My Instagram is at driftproofpodcast. I have um, a website, andrewcipriano.com. I have YouTube videos, literally Andrew Cipriano on YouTube, and you can find some of my psychology videos. Find a way to reach out to me. Give me some feedback. This is a lot of information I've just dropped. And I'm sure that you have questions. I'm sure that I've said something that maybe you didn't agree with and that's okay. And I hope you do, because if you blindly agree with everything I say, that's boring and that's not good. And then it puts me in a position of unjust power. Just kidding. But please, please let me know what you're thinking. I really enjoyed this episode. I will continue to be doing these educational episodes in psychology. And I'm very, very happy to have this platform and have this experience to just talk. And I'm so, so grateful to everyone who's been listening. So next week I plan on releasing a podcast episode with another guest. I love doing those, but I'm going to be peppering out these educational episodes throughout. And if you guys have any ideas of what you want to talk about, or again, you want to tell me I'm wrong or I'm right on something, I'm never going to, it's never going to bruise my ego to tell me I'm right on something. So, um, thank you so much for listening and you guys have a great week. I will see you next Monday here at the drift proof podcast.